Joel 1 verse 1. The word of Yahweh that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? In other words, this is a, this is a big event. Something historic has happened. Has it ever happened in your father's days or your days? So verse 3, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. This is huge. In other words, pass it down. What happened, you might wonder? Verse 4 suggests this. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Locusts, big deal. Oh, no, no, no. Locusts are a huge deal. In this time, a swarm of locusts would have been the ancient equivalent to an atomic bomb in our day. Not that locusts could destroy buildings or rip the flesh off of people, but that the aftermath of the locusts can be just as devastating as an atomic bomb. Here's how the locusts would have looked. In a single square mile, uh, in a single square mile, there would be some 80 to 160 million locusts packed into that square mile. 80 to 160 million locusts. Now, how many square miles would the locusts cover? Eh, roughly 460 square miles. 460 square miles at 60 to 180 million locusts per square mile. You do the math, that's a lot of locusts. Now, you might be wondering, yeah, but locusts are tiny little things. How much could they possibly eat? Well, they're about the size of your thumb. I have small hands, though, so maybe a little bit bigger than my thumb. Look at your thumb. It's probably that size. And they would eat their body weight up to their body weight or two times their body weight per day in green vegetation. So you put that many millions of locusts into a region and they're eating that much per day, you're soon left with absolutely nothing green left. All of your crops are gone, which means you have nothing to eat and your animals have nothing to eat. And so you will soon starve unless you have some sort of backup plan. So up to 400 400 million pounds of food a day. 400 million pounds of food a day. That's how much the locusts would come through and eat and go. So is this a big deal? It's a huge deal. Something this catastrophic happened, apparently, to Israel. So that this prophet sees this moment, and as prophets do, they see in what seems to be a common worldly affair, and they see in it God's hand. That's what prophets are good at. They can see where God is working in the common. And Joel sees in this locust plague some lessons for Israel to learn and for us to learn. So this event happens. He says, look, tell everybody about it. Because there are some lessons to be learned in this plague that had happened. Now, today we don't deal with locusts. But we do deal with things that treat us like verse 4. That cut, that swarm, that hop, that eat and destroy. I've been in places and you've been in places where you feel stripped down, where you feel consumed, 
where you feel like the number of things to do or to handle or to tackle or that are against you are as overwhelming as a horde of locusts. Maybe it's a disaster like September 11th. After September 11th, church attendance increased by 25% across the nation. Joel sees a national disaster and says, all right, people are asking God what's up. I'll tell you. So maybe it's something huge. Maybe it's the people in your life. Everyone seems to be at your throat for something. Maybe you have too many demands and each one is like a locust stripping a little bit off of you until you're left barren and wasted. We all deal with some sort of a locust invasion. It might be the big things, it might be the small things. But Joel has lessons for us in all of those. So let's take a look at the outline of this book real quick so we know what we're handling. And then we will look at these lessons that Joel has for us, these locust lessons. Okay, so chapter 1, he's going to continue to describe to us this locust plague. So I just titled chapter 1, Disaster. And it goes all the way to 2, verse 11. So Joel 1, uh, starting at the beginning all the way to 2, 11, that's disaster. And there's actually two disasters. We'll look at those. Then the second part of the book starts in 2, verse 12. And that is where God is calling for his people to return to him. And there's this offer. If you guys return to me, then I will return from the disaster that's about to come upon you. I will change my mind, in other words. So you change your course, I will change my mind. So there's this offer, this two-way return thing. And that takes us from 2.12 all the way to 2.27. And then, third and finally, in 2.28, you have what I'm titling the outpouring. 228, you have the outpouring of the Spirit. Chapter 3, you have the outpouring of judgment. And at the very end of the book, the outpouring of blessing. So we have disaster, return, and outpouring. That's how this looks. So there are some questions about this locust invasion. Some people think that it wasn't locusts at all, that it was an army that the prophet rather poetically describes as locusts. An army can come through and devastate the land as well. Other people think, nope, it's literally locusts. They come through and they do this. There's reason for seeing both sides of this. So others say, well, you actually have two disasters being described. One is locusts and one is an army, which I tend to favor um, for reasons that you'll see as we read it. So in chapter one, you have locusts that are like an army. And in chapter two, you're going to have an army that's like locusts. One other thing about this book that we have to wrestle with is, when was it written? Who is Joel and when was it written? Only thing we know about Joel is that he's the son of Pethuel. doesn't help us at all. We don't know anything else. There's nothing in the book that helps us to know the date of this book. So scholars say it's anywhere from the 700s BC, anywhere in that century, 799 BC up to... 299 BC or 300 BC, a huge gap. And it could be anywhere in there. We don't really know, which really bothers some people. They're like, but we got to know how to interpret this and that and that. Well, this is the good thing, is that when a book is hard to put a date on, it just means that the message is timeless, that these words work over so many different scenarios. And maybe that's part of Joel's point. 
is he's not just saying, all right, this book is only meant to be read when locusts invade your land. That's way too narrow. Joel more than likely is seeing something in the nature of God through these locusts, more like in the nature of his people in these locusts, and wants to draw them back to God through the situation. So that then any time we have some sort of disruption, some sort of invasion, the locusts in our life will become vehicles to bring us to a return to God, as Joel wants to do. So, four lessons he wants to teach us from these locusts. And the first is, wake up. Locusts can teach us to wake up. So, let's continue where we left off. We're now in 1 verse 5. And the first action he gives us is, awake. All right. Tell everyone, mark this day on your calendar. This was epic. This was historic. We're going to remember this from generation to generation. The locust came and took everything. So in verse 5, wake up. I want you to awake. You drunkards and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land. Powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Do you see there in verse 6 why some people think this is an army? He said a nation comes up, but then he describes it like a locust with these teeth, and it devours. So there you go. That's why some people are confused about what attacked Israel. And again, we say, as Joel's timeless, it's also applicable in so many areas of life because we can't pinpoint what precisely happened and when it happened. We just know that it seems like a locust invasion. But he tells them to wake up. So verse 7, It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off. From the house of Yahweh, the priests mourn the ministers of Yahweh. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Now, you might be wondering, what's up with all the wine? They're whining and whining about the wine. We have to remember that in this day, wine was considered a necessity, a, a beverage of choice. We have so many beverages of choice. I want you to imagine that the coffee was gone from our nation. Think of it in that regard. And then the oil was, um, man, that was luxury. To have some olive oil for your meal, that was good. Now, we can buy oil cheap today, so we think we, we do stir-fry and dump it in and stuff and don't think much about it, but um, oil was definitely precious. So all the goods are gone. In verse 11, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Ooh, isn't that poetic? So all the fruit is dried up. But then the fruit of joy in, our, in the people's own lives, that too has dried up. So everyone's down. Morale's low. And nobody knows where their next meal is going to come from. And so then... Um, there's this call to, look, call a fast. Uh, okay, we got that, priest. We can fast just fine. We got no food. 
and then there's a lament, and they're they're wailing for the day. I'm gonna I'm skipping over this repentance section because there's a much stronger section that's coming up. But um, in verse 17, we pick up on more of the devastation. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. Oh, to you, O Yahweh, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So now everything's burning because it's dry. Dire situation. But the prophet wants us to wake up. So he says, awake. Awake, awake. Because we are in a way like the drunkards. Although I would say we're more, we're more disillusioned. We... We imagine that everything that is will go on forever. Now, we know that it doesn't. We know that. And you wouldn't argue with me. But when you think about it, the way we behave day after day is as if everything we have now will continue forever. Why else then when things change, do we act surprised? Or do we, or do we panic and say, ah, oh, what do we do? It's because you weren't expecting it to change. You're expecting the house we live in to be the house we'll live in for a long time, unless, of course, you're planning to move. We expect our cars to keep running. We expect a lot of things and hope for a lot of things to remain intact. We want permanence. And so we begin to pretend that everything in our life is permanent. But suddenly something isn't permanent. The locust comes in, it invades, it devours and rips up something that you thought was going to be there for you, and now it's not. And it's in those moments that you wake up. You realize that life has a clock. Not because you're late to something, but now you're realizing that time is ticking and it's short. You also realize, I'm limited. I don't have everything. And that's hard for us as Americans to understand. Because we have lots of food and lots of stuff, and anything that we need, we can essentially get. Very few of us run into limitation. In fact, messages in movies and in the media and literature is all about be everything you can be. You have unlimited potential. If you just knew the right secrets, the right tricks, if you worked hard enough, you have the freedom to reach some sort of ideal vision of yourself. And so Americans are not good at seeing the limitations of the human being. But every now and then, stuff happens, and the prophet would say, wait, pay attention to that. Don't think of that as a hindrance to your becoming a greater human. See that as God reminding you that you're limited. You are nothing but dust. Of course, beloved by him and given his spirit, given, uh, his spirit but you are dust. We're fragile. We're temporary. We have limitations. We're finite. Also, the wake-up call is a courtesy call. Now, I don't know how many of you guys ever sleep through your alarm clock, but occasionally there's a morning where I am mad at my phone because I swear it didn't, the alarm didn't sound. 
I don't know what happened, but the first time I woke up, it was two hours past wake up time. And I'm telling you, it did not go off. I didn't hit the snooze button. I know I didn't. Anyone been there before? Okay, I'm glad I'm not alone because some people are like, mm. <laughs> um, now I don't, well, there, yeah. So courtesy wake ups are nice because sometimes we can snooze a little too long. And when somebody comes and warns you, hey, you're a little bit past, you're like, oh my goodness, thank you for waking up. You saved me from running late. That's a blessing. And here we can be a people who are not literally sleeping in on our day, but we're sleeping in on the day of the Lord. We're sleeping in and we're going to continue in our disillusionment right until, oh no, he's back. What happened? And the prophet wants to wake us up and say, wait, don't cruise through life. Don't be snoozing through everything. Wake up to what's in front of you now. And every now and then a locust will come and it will be a gentle reminder. Hey, hey, the day of the Lord is coming. It's coming so this is where Joel's going to start to talk about this day of the Lord. You've heard this phrase over and over in the other prophets. It's the day of the Lord is not a literal 24-hour day. It's a period. And it's not always defined well. It often refers to the whole end time scheme. Just all of these things happen in the end time. That's the day of the Lord, often. But the day of the Lord also applies to any time that God is going to show up and appear. So Joel believes that there's a day of the Lord right on the cusp for Israel. And he's going to talk about that right now. So wake up because the Lord is coming and you don't want to snooze through that day because it will go poorly for you. So in chapter 2, we saw the destruction that had happened, a locust plague. Now there's this looming disaster that's about to come in chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of Yahweh is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. I see darkness. I see a horde of people on the mountains, and there will never be anything like it. The day of the Lord is near. Whoa, Joel, settle down, man. Where's the, where's the love, joy, and peace message? He, in this event that had happened, the locust sees in it a warning, a wake-up call for the much bigger, much more terrifying day of the Lord to come. And it's near, he warns. So what is it? This is where some people say, okay, so a locust plague had happened, and now in the future it appears that there's going to be an invasion of a literal army. I don't know if Joel's being that specific, but that seems to be one way to read it. Something had happened, something's about to happen, so he looks at that one and says, okay, guys, get ready. If you don't want this one to happen, wake up. You do not want to snooze through the day of Yahweh. So, verse 3 continues to describe this coming day. Fire devours before them, this invasion. And behind them, a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them, a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. 
and like war horses they run. As with the running of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. And the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. Yahweh utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of Yahweh is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is what's coming, gang, he says. So if you thought the locusts were bad, let that be your wake-up call. Let's not snooze anymore. We have limitations. We're finite beings, so we need this God. Let's turn to him now. That's his message to them. You might have noticed there's a lot of allusions here to Revelation. Revelation picks up on a lot of these. First of all, this locust-like, horse-like, lion-like horde Revelation 9 talks about this. You can go read that tonight. And he seems to be drawing on Joel's language when Revelation describes that vision. Um, Also, verse 10, the, the earth quaking and the sun and moon being darkened. Jesus talks about that, about the end times. And then the end of verse 11, who can endure it? Revelation 6 has people hiding from the day of the Lord. And it says, the wrath of the Lamb has come. Who can endure it? So there's a lot of what you'd call apocalyptic, end time, the day of the Lord stuff happening. And Joel sees in the locusts that came to the land a warning to wake up. So don't sleep in. Don't sleep in. Every time you feel the nibble of a locust in your life, let that be a trigger, an alarm clock that says, hey, let's not be drowsy. Let's not be snoozing. Let's be present to the God who is here, lest we miss and his day comes upon us suddenly. Now, second lesson. We're going to move to the second section of the book of Joel. Remember, the second section is return. Starts in 2 verse 12. His second lesson for us is just that. Return. Return to Yahweh. So, in Joel 2 verse 12. Yet even now, So despite this warning, this great coming day, it says, Yet even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return, second time, return to Yahweh your God, For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Or one translation says he's always ready to cancel catastrophe. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him instead of destruction. A grain offering and a drink offering for Yahweh your God. So blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call an assembly 
Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. In other words, if you're on a honeymoon, cancel it and get here now. This is urgent. So he goes on to call this great return to the Lord. Let's have a revival. Let's wake up people. We need to return now. I love this call here to return. And he says um, in verse 13, For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He's willing to cancel catastrophe. Joel's saying, look, I just warned you about the great dreadful thing that's coming. It's looming. It's going to hit us soon. But, but, I'm telling you that God doesn't want it to happen. When we hear prophets predict the future, we often jump to the assumption, we jump to the conclusion that it's a predetermined event. It's determined. Nothing can change it. A prophet said it, it's going to happen. That is true with some things. For example, Jesus will return. That's going to happen. That's determined. God has promised so. But then there are predictions that prophets make that are not determined. They are possibilities. It's the prophet saying, this is going to happen if we don't meet this condition. That's a lot like what we have going on here. Joel's saying there is this great and dreadful day, but we may be able to escape it. If we return to Yahweh, he will relent. And in the Hebrew, there's this play on words. It's if we return to him, he will return from his plan. He will change it. I like to think of it as, did you guys um, ever read these, the choose your own adventure stories? So if you're not familiar with them, this is how they work. The reader is taken through an adventure, but you get to choose how it goes. So the reader might be taken into the situation where you're walking through the forest and you come right around a large boulder and almost run right into a mama bear with her cubs. Uh Uh-oh, not a good situation. Then the book will give you a series of options. Do you, A, play dead. B, shout and make lots of noise and throw rocks at the bear. C, Run away as fast as you can. Or D, casually walk around the rock as if you never saw the bear. Now, you pick your option. This is where it's a choose-your-own-adventure. You pick your option, and then it will then tell you, if you picked B, go to page 22. If you picked C, go to page 17. So you make your option, then you go to that page, and it takes you to another scenario. It said, you picked throwing a rock at the bear. You throw the rock at the bear. So you turn to that page. You threw the rock at the bear. It hardly felt it, but it was mad, and it charged you. Do you, A, fall down flat and hope the bear runs over you, B, stand up and fight it, trying to punch it in the nose, C, so forth. So it keeps taking you through scenarios where you get to choose what you do, and then it takes you through the next likely scenario. That's a choose-your-own-adventure story. I loved those as a kid, although I only read one, because I never could find them, but I loved it. And they were fun. What Joel's doing for Israel, and sometimes what the prophets are doing, is they're actually, they're not saying this is going to happen, so just suck it up, just, you know what, might as well build a bomb shelter and get a lot of canned beans. It's going to happen. 
What Joel's saying is, God is giving you a choose-your-own-adventure story. Or, if you will, a choose-your-own-apocalypse. This is what's coming. You've got two options. If you choose to return to Yahweh, turn... Uh, let's start. Let's, let's do it backwards, actually. If you choose to continue in your way, see chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. So then the readers wake, oh, okay, 2, verse 1 through 11. We just read that. Ooh, it looks horrible. Oh, my goodness, we're going to have an invasion. Then Joel says, if you choose to return to Yahweh with all your heart, see chapter 2, verse 18. So let's see chapter 2, verse 18. Because I think that's what you want to choose, right? Let me just tell you how the story ends. You want to choose return to Yahweh. Okay. So we flip over to 2.18 and we see how this adventure goes. Then Yahweh became jealous for his land. Then meaning the people had returned. This is what it's going to look like when they return to him. Then Yahweh became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Yahweh answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for Yahweh has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. This is total reversal. This is restoration. This is good news. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. That would be a fall rain. So your harvest season, your fall rain. Uh, Then it says, he has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. So that's your fall and your spring rain. Uh, in, In the Jewish calendar, fall was the beginning of the year. And actually in a lot of ancient societies. So the early rain would have been your fall rains and your latter rains are the spring rains. You needed both to have your full crops. So God's going to give them the full rain cycle and it's going to be good. Verse 24 The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And, well-known verse, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Whoa. So everything that we had suffered through the locusts, God will give back, and then there will be all this blessing and bounty on top of that. So the locust becomes a lesson for us. It's dreadful, but if we choose in the choose-your-own-adventure story that God's giving us, if we choose to return to him with all of our heart, it ends up well. So he then goes on to say, you will eat in plenty and you will not know shame. That's how it will end, given your two options that the prophet gives. So the prophet says the locusts remind us to wake up, They remind us to return to God with all of our heart. Not just this half-hearted, oh, okay, I'll start going back to church. (laughs) But this wholehearted, I want to give my life to him, and I want to know him for who he is. 
not just to get out of jail free. As some people come to Christianity for fire insurance, if you know what I mean. Get out of hell free card. Um, Yeah, that's great. That's great that God does that. But returning to him with our whole heart means every part of our life is now coming back to the God who made us. We're returning to our origin. So the third lesson is in the same section. It's to rend our hearts. So we're to wake up, we're to return to God with all our heart, but then you might ask, how do I return to God with all my heart? Joel says to rend your heart, not your garment. So again, that's verse 13. He says, and to verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now, most of you don't have the impulse to rend your garments. It's not like, oh no, somebody fell asleep in here and I ripped my shirt open. That's not a typical reaction for most Americans. However, in in the Hebrew culture, that was a typical reaction. Something bad happened, they would tear their clothes and they put ashes in their hair, dust, whatever was at hand, and everyone know you're going through something. Um, But in our figure here, in our picture, rending your garment would have been their religious visual to each other. Something bad's happened. And God is trying to call them, Joel, God through Joel is trying to tell them, look, don't rend your garments. This is a much deeper issue. I need you to rend the very heart. I need you to feel broken within. I need your very self to say, I woke up. I'm not a God who can do whatever I want. I'm limited. I'm finite. And I need this God. So I'll return to him. And in all of that process, you're not coming to him to say, oh, I'll get my religious game on. And yep, ripping my garments. Oh, hallelujah, God, you're so awesome. I'm coming to him to say, God, I, you're awesome. And I'm totally not. And I need you, and I realize what lies ahead on this path I'm on if I don't come to you with every fiber of my being. That's the rending your heart and not your garments. Or to look at it another way, rending your garments, as a religious person would do, sees religion about sacrificing everything for God. Oh no, a trouble's coming. Give everything to God. Give him more. Make him happy. We'll tithe even more. We'll go, to, we'll go to three church services a week. We'll make sure we read the bookmark Pastor Brandon gives us. We'll actually read it this time. We will make sure we pray. Like, you're going to do all these things, right? And then it's like, I'm, Lord, you can take my house. Because basically you're trying to pay him off. You think like he's going he's gonna to suddenly respond because you're all of a sudden religious. Ripping your garments tries to sacrifice everything for God. But rending your heart is sacrificing everything, even God. It's even sacrificing God. In other words, I'm not coming to him because, oh, you got to save me from this terrible disaster. I don't want it to happen. Please take me out of it. Nor is it, oh, I love worship because I just feel so much better. Or because our worship leader has such a great voice. Oh, I can go on because Richard isn't here right now. <laughs> no. um, or, oh, but our pastor, he's just so funny. Or none of those things matter anymore. Because whatever image of God you're holding on to, when you rend your heart, that God is gone. And instead of me holding on to God, I realize that it's God who's holding on to me. And that's the way it's always been. 
But we sometimes have to rend our hearts. We have to let the locusts come and bring a situation where we must rend our hearts so we finally let go of the God that we are holding on to. And now he's holding us. So rending your heart is surrendering everything, even surrendering God. Letting him be who he is. Now our fourth lesson. So the locusts through Joel tell us to wake up to return with all our hearts, to rend not our garments, but our heart, and finally, to receive. To receive. If you've gone through this, if you've woken up, you return to God with all your heart, and you're letting him, you're rending your heart before him, now you're in a place to receive what he's always been giving you. We live in an achieving society. And many of our churches and I'm not, I'm not thinking of any specific ones per se. I think we can be in the habit, too, of thinking we got to achieve something. Like, we got to achieve a certain number in attendance. we got to achieve a certain satisfaction level. We gotta, there is no room in the gospel for what you achieve. The gospel is what God achieved, and it's what we receive. And it's when the locust comes and strips and devours and invades that we suddenly realize, yep, I'm awake, I'm limited, I can't achieve, I have to receive what God is giving. So the third section of Hosea, of Joel, <laughs> the third section of Joel is the outpouring section. And we see first that he's pouring out his spirit. 2 verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward. So this is end times. And by the way, Peter quotes this verse, which we read before worship. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, and everyone's like, what's going on? Peter says, Joel is going on. This is what Joel had prophesied. So um, when Peter cites this, he says, the end times. So it shall come to pass afterward in the end times that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. Here's that day of Yahweh again, but now we see he's giving his spirit so that there will be some who can go through this day or be rescued from this day. And it shall come to pass, verse 32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, on the name of Yahweh, shall be saved. Paul reads that one in Romans chapter 10. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom Yahweh calls so he's pouring out his spirit. Who's going to receive the spirit? Who's going to receive what he's pouring out? Because they're the ones who will be rescued, who will be saved. Who is it? It's those who are awake, who have returned with all their heart and have rent their heart and given up their religious game. They're receiving the spirit of God. The locusts tell us there's nothing else we need. I, I don't need anything but the Spirit of God in my life to be filled and full of the Spirit. 
And we see what the disciples did when they received the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. The rest of Acts, the rest of the 2,000 years since then to the present with us in here is testimony to what happens when we stop trying to achieve and let the locusts have all of our works and say, all right, I'm going to receive from God instead. I'm going to let his power be the driving force. So this is receiving the Spirit but others will receive something else. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. So chapter 3 begins with saying, uh, in those days when he restores Judah and Jerusalem, he's going to bring the nations together. And in chapter 3, verse 9, we see this. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of of war draw near. Let them come up. Now, remember when Isaiah saw all the nations coming together to Jerusalem? It was the tall center mountain of the whole world. And the nations came and it says they beat their swords into plowshares. All weapons are turning into gardening tools. Well, Joel, apparently, either Isaiah flipped Joel's verse around or Joel flips Isaiah's verse around. We don't know who wrote first, but he's flipping that verse around. And he says, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Joel's calling for violence. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Yahweh. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. See if verse 13 sounds familiar. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Now if it doesn't sound familiar, it's probably because you didn't go through Revelation recently. But you might remember from, I don't know, three years, four years back in Revelation, chapter 14, The angels are commanded to put the sickle in. They gather the grapes from the earth and they're treading it in the wine press. And it says the juice, or I think it literally says the blood from the grapes went up as high as the horse's bridle. And then after that, you see the angels with the bowls of judgment and they pour them out on the earth. And it's my suggestion that the bowls that the angels pour out upon the earth are the juice from the wine press. But who's in the wine press, as we see here in Joel, are the evil. The ones who don't receive the Holy Spirit receive the stomping foot in the wine press. And the works of their life, who they are and the rottenness that they've lived, comes out. And from there, God pours it back upon the inhabitants who have committed the crimes. So it's this evil feedback, right? They've done it, they're getting it back. As Galatians tells us, Paul says in Galatians 6, you will reap what you sow. Or in other words, you will get what you threw out. And here we see these are receiving judgment. So verse 14 continues, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. So there it is, that day of the Lord, that day of Yahweh, it has come on these, and this is what it looks like. And when I say these, we're assuming that the other party is those who received the Holy Spirit. 
They're not in this picture. 15, the sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Yahweh roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But Yahweh is a refuge to his people. So those who receive the Holy Spirit. So here we see receiving in two forms. Those who receive the Spirit are impressed. I'll explain this in a second. They're impressed. Those who don't are expressed. And we have a world right now that's all into being impressed with our talents and our greatness. And we're also really into expressing ourselves, whether it's our sexual or gender preferences or our um, hobbies and who we are and what we're doing with our life and where we are and who we're with. Social media is full of expression. Impression, expression. Now, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But what we see in these words is there's a press, like a wine press. But impressed is what the Holy Spirit does to us. He literally impresses us. He comes in. He brings God's influence, God's riches, God's life, and puts it into us. We are impressed with him, and his mark is upon us. Others would rather express. They would have an outpress. That when they're pressed, it's not with the spirit whom they rejected, but it's with judgment, and what comes out of them is the juice. Joel's asking us to receive. Would you rather be pressed in by God or pressed out by God? You have your own choose your adventure story. When the locust comes, will we wake up? Will we return to him with all of our heart? Will we rend our hearts? And will we receive what he's giving us? His Holy Spirit. Or are we going to keep on going on our own and saying, yeah, no, scientifically explainable, those locusts, they just come every five years. If you do the math, you'll see there, we should have predicted it. Or are we looking, as Joel teaches us to, where is God and what is he teaching in that conversation, that person, in that situation? As simple as a flat tire or getting laid off. Or finding out that you don't have the money this week. Or your boss is just insufferable. Irrationally upset with you because of what Pete did. These can become, for those who have eyes to see the God who's present in our midst, locusts that teach us lessons to wake up, to return to him with our whole heart, to rend our hearts and to receive his spirit. Every day, God's giving us opportunities to realize our limitations. But despite these limitations, he's given us his spirit to flood into those nooks and crannies. So that the book ends gloriously with blessing. There's an outpouring of the spirit of judgment and then of blessing. And it says that things are going to flow. Milk and wine are going to flood the hills and water will flow And it's going to be good. So I think for us, Joel, I think Peter extracts from Joel what the Christian needs. 
And Peter tells the people at Pentecost in Acts 2, is they're like, what's going on? Is this new wine? Are they, what's going And Peter's like, this is not new wine. You can't get drunk on new wine, by the way. It's unfermented, but whatever. Um, no, this is the Holy Spirit, you see. This is the Holy Spirit. What you see flowing out of us is that Spirit. And so the people then ask, what shall we do? And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says, well, you should repent. That's what Joel says. Return to God with your whole heart and rend your heart. Repent, that's return, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would give to us